Let's go ahead and bow our hearts in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for the fact that you are sovereign and you are still on your throne, regardless of what's happening in the world. And you are the rock of all ages. And I just pray, Father, that people would leave here today understanding that, that, that when they're in a relationship with you, they are in a relationship with the immutable, immovable, uh, eternal, uh, changeless God, and that we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. So give us that confidence, we pray today, as we look into your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, well, if you can open your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel. Uh, chapter 37 and verse 23. We are continuing our study on the Middle East meltdown. I'm glad nothing in the news happened this week that would relate to this. Um, so we'll try to we'll try to get to Russia, hopefully. If, if I can make it through verse 2 of the next chapter, we'll talk about Russia. I was going to entitle this um, From Russia with Love, but I decided <laughs> that might be a little bit of an overreach. So chapter, we're doing this study on the Middle East meltdown, which is basically a, ch- a study on chapters 36 through 39 of the book of Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel 36, as you know, is about the spirit, it's a tremendous prophecy about the spiritual and political restoration of the nation of Israel in the last days. And then from there we moved into chapter 37 where Ezekiel is given two metaphors or two word pictures to describe the content that he just saw in chapter 36. The first metaphor is the vision of the Valley of the Dry Bones coming together. And it's at that point the Lord said, these bones are the whole house of Israel. So he sees the bones assemble. That would be a political restoration. And then he sees the breath or the ruah or the Holy Spirit enter the body so it becomes a living being. And then he also sees, verses 15 through 17, two sticks coming together. And as we saw last time, that basically represents the uniting of the northern and the southern kingdoms in the millennium. That division between the two kingdoms won't exist anymore. And so we made it all the way through, I think, verse 22 last time, where Ezekiel had these prophecies about a united kingdom in the millennium. And so we pick it up here with verse 23. It says, They will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and cleanse them, and they will be my people and I will be their God. So that's the end game of this process that we're articulating here that Ezekiel saw. It's not just the physical restoration of the nation, but it's very clear when you look at verse 23, when it says they'll be cleansed of their idols, they'll be cleansed of their detestable things. It's also the spiritual restoration of the nation. So one nation in faith again is the, is the prediction. And then you come to verse 24, which is very problematic for a lot of interpreters. It says in that time period, quote, my servant David, now notice it doesn't say branch of David, son of David, seed of David, because everybody wants to make this Jesus. Okay. It just says David. 
It says, my servant David will be king over them and they will have one shepherd, which would make sense because they're one nation again. And they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. So the issue is the millennial David. What is being spoken of here? Well, what you'll discover in the the prophets is that four times it mentions a restored Israel under David. Uh, The first time it's predicted, I think, is in Hosea 3, verse 5. It says, Afterwards, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. It's mentioned a second time in Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 9. It says, but they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. And then in, even in the book that we're studying here, a few chapters earlier, back in chapter 34 and verse 23, it says, then I will appoint over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself (laughs) and be their shepherd. So when people run into passage like this, this is where your literal interpretation, because there's a lot of people that say, I I interpret the Bible literally, but here's where it's tested. I mean, what what exactly does this mean? And sadly, the overwhelming majority of commentators turn this as a prophecy into Jesus. Because Jesus, of course, is born from the line of David, they reason, and this is just talking about David's uh, greater son, Jesus Christ. But the problem is, as you look at these passages, it doesn't say anything other than David. Now, it is true that in the Bible, David is often used as a metaphor for Jesus, but when that happens, you'll see a textual clue there. It'll say something like root of Jesse, branch of David, son of David, seed of David. Nothing like that is said here. It simply says David. So as we've tried to go through in this series, language, and of course the Bible was written in language, there's only two kinds of language. There's literal language and figurative language. And generally, our, we think the best method of interpretation when you study the Bible is to take everything at face value, unless there's something in the text itself which tells you that a figure of speech is in play. So when you back up to chapter 37, verse 11, it says, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. We don't take the bones as anything other than a symbol for Israel. Why is that? Because the text told us. The vision of the two sticks coming together, if you look back at chapter 37 and verse 18, it says, when the, when the sons of your people speak to you saying, will you not declare to us what you mean by these, the two sticks, in other words. We take the two sticks as a symbol for something else because the text tells us. It gives us a clue. And you don't have any kind of clue like that here in chapter 37, verse 24. It's just a statement about David. So what what do you do with that? What I do with it is I, I take it literally. Um, I actually think David himself is going to be resurrected and is going to reign over the land of Israel in the millennial kingdom. And that's not too big of a stretch because we know that Old Testament saints and tribulation martyrs, Daniel 12, verses 2 and 3, will be resurrected at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And David is in that group. And so he is resurrected and he's given his rightful authority over all of the land of Israel. Um, We've done uh, sermons and things on the different resurrections. And here I'm talking about the resurrection called the soldiers, 
which will consist of Old Testament saints and tribulation martyrs. All Old Testament saints will be resurrected in that third resurrection, so to speak. And David would be in that group. And so David, we believe, will actually be brought back to life. And he will reign over the United Kingdom of Israel. And a lot of you are saying, Pastor, I've never heard that kind of interpretation before. That's why I like to quote people that have said it. Um, You'll notice what Arnold Fruchtenbaum says about this passage, Ezekiel 37, verse 24. He says, nothing in the text indicates that David is to be taken symbolically. If these prophets wanted to refer to the Messiah in connection with David, they used terms such as root of Jesse, branch of David, son of David, seed of David. None of these expressions are used here. The text simply states David. In keeping with literal interpretation, it is best to take the text as it reads, meaning the literal David who in his resurrected form will function as king over Israel as a priest in subjection to the king of the world. So you notice we're not ruling out Jesus here. Jesus is ruling the whole world during the thousand years. David is exercising authority under the delegated authority of Jesus Christ. And David, in a co-regency form of government, is ruling over Israel while Jesus is ruling over all of planet Earth. John Walvoord, in his book, Every Prophecy of the Bible, says concerning this verse, Though some have attempted to take the prophecy in less than its literal meaning, the clear statement is that David, who is now dead and whose body is in the tomb of Jerusalem, will be resurrected. Uh, My professor, Dr. Charles Dyer, puts it as follows as he's commenting on this verse in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. He says, after judging the individual sheep... God will exercise his leadership by appointing a new shepherd. This shepherd, God stated, will be his servant, David. Many see this as an allusion to Christ, the good shepherd, who descends from the line of David to be the king of Israel. However, nothing in Ezekiel 34:23 or 37 24, for that matter, demands that Ezekiel was not referring to the literal King David who will be resurrected to serve as Israel's righteous prince. David is referred to by name in passages that look to the future restoration of Israel. Notice he's quoting there several verses that I read to you earlier. Also, Ezekiel indicated that David will be the prince of the restored people. This prince will then offer sin offerings for himself during the millennial period. Such actions could hardly be appropriate for the sinless son of God, but they would be for David. So it seems this is a literal reference to the resurrected David. Uh, Thomas Ice in the Tim LaHaye Prophecy Study Bible says of this verse, While Jesus the Messiah will rule over the entire earth, David will be resurrected to reign with Christ as vice-regent over the nation of Israel. So I'm one of those Bible readers that tries to take everything at face value the best I can. And I realize that if the day comes where I don't, And if I start to sort of rewrite the passage here to fit my understanding of it, rather than submit to what it says, that's a very dangerous door that opens up because I can do that virtually anywhere. So that's why issues like this are actually a big deal. So you move away from verse 24 and then you move into verse 25 and you have a prophecy there about the land, and it says, They will live on the land that I gave Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, and their sons 
and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. So it's very clear that God is going to give to the nation of Israel in the millennial kingdom everything he's ever promised. And that promise or promises begin with the Abrahamic covenant, which is a represents in part, among other things that God promised there for Israel, in covenant form, a track of real estate that literally goes from Egypt to Iraq. And God says that that land belongs to me and I gave it to the nation of Israel and everybody else on that land is a squatter and the squatters are going to be removed and they're not going to be fighting anymore about the so-called West Bank, you know, so-called the West Bank west of the Jordan. They're actually also going to have the East Bank. So I find that very interesting, you know, when everybody's upset about the West Bank. When is Israel going to give back the West Bank? And my reaction is, well, when are you guys going to give up the East Bank? Because Israel is going to get all of it one day. The whole enchilada, maybe a better metaphor is the whole shawarma. The whole thing, it's going to be united kingdom. They're going to have one king and David who made some bad choices in his life. Amen. And it shows you that just because you've made some bad choices in your life, God still doesn't have a future for you. Because we all make bad choices and we think God is finished with us. And David, with all of his problems, God says, I'm not finished with you, David. You're, you're going to be brought to life in this resurrection of Old Testament saints. And you're going to be given authority over the United Kingdom of Israel. And you're going to have every square inch of everything that I promised in the Abrahamic covenant. And then you move into verse 26 through the first part of verse 28, and it says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. So stopping just for a minute there, we know exactly what covenant he's talking about. He's talking about the Abrahamic covenant, which unconditionally gives to the land, the nation of Israel, land, seed, and blessing. And those three things are filled out in greater detail in the sub-covenants that God later made with Israel. And so this is the time in history, the millennial kingdom, when all of these covenantal promises will find their absolute realization. So God is a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. And every day of your life as a Christian, you should praise the Lord for that. Because if God is going to keep his promises to the Jew, that means he's going to keep his promises to you. Amen? And for him not to do so would be to violate his very nature. Because he cannot lie. So God, contrary to the portrayal of God in Islam, is not a deceiver. He's not going to rip the carpet out from under you if he feels like it, if he's in a capricious mood. His character is such that he is a truth teller. And by the way, if God is a truth teller and we're supposed to be like him, we should be truth tellers as well. Amen? Speak the truth in in love. That's part of our calling. Why, why even do that? Because it's who God is. And we are to imitate his basic uh, character. You continue on from the second half of verse 26 down, down through the end of verse 28, and it says, And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. You should underline sanctuary. What sanctuary? Verse 27. My dwelling place, you should underline dwelling place, also will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Then down to verse 28. And the nations will know the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my, what's the next word? Sanctuary, you should underline sanctuary, is in their midst forever. 
So he says here over and over again, sanctuary, dwelling place. What is he speaking of? He is speaking of what is going to be unpacked in Ezekiel 40 through 46, which is the greatest description you have anywhere in the Bible of the millennial temple. Charles Feinberg says, many have denied that this refers to a physical building in sanctuary. But this seems pointless in view of the last nine chapters of the book, which are treated at length. Just as it pleases God to dwell in a tabernacle when Israel departed from Egypt, so he will tabernacle among them in their converted condition. This relates to God's program for the nation of Israel, where they will have a fourth temple. In the history of the nation of Israel, there have been two temples, past, two future. The first was the temple Solomon built, destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. The second was the temple that we're studying on Wednesday evenings in the book of Zechariah that was built by the returnees from the exile. And that temple was destroyed by Rome 40 years after the time of Christ. So ever since that point in time, there's never been a Jewish temple. But prophetically, we know there has to be a third temple. Because it's difficult for the Antichrist to desecrate the temple midway through the tribulation period unless there is a what? Temple. So by inference, there has to be a rebuilt temple functioning midway through the tribulation. That's why when Israel today is making movements towards rebuilding it, we say to ourselves, I see the Christmas lights, so therefore Thanksgiving is coming. The signs of Christmas tell us that we're approaching Christmas, but Thanksgiving occurs earlier on the calendar than Christmas, and because the rapture of the church precedes the tribulation period and the signs of the tribulation period are approaching, boy, we must be getting pretty close to the rapture, which gives us an incentive to live differently. Now that third temple, we believe, is going to be destroyed with bold judgment number seven, which is a description of the greatest earthquake in human history. And it is to be replaced by the glorious millennial temple that Ezekiel spells out in really chapters 40 through 46. Chapters 47 through 48 are really dealing with a couple of other subjects. But if you're on your one-year Bible reading program and you get to Ezekiel 40 through 46, uh, I'll be praying for you because it's kind of tough terrain to get through because it's mind-numbing in its details. But all of it is meant to be understood literally. And here in the book of Ezekiel, you have your first reference to this fourth millennial temple. There's a artist caricature of most likely what it's going to look like. And you notice how big it's going to be. Look how big it is compared to Temple 2. Look at how big it is compared to Temple 1. Look at how big it is compared to the tabernacle that we read about in the book of Exodus. Look how big it is compared to a modern-day football field. I mean, this is going to be astronomical. And what people do here is it doesn't fit their theology, so they just get out the magic markers and they just start rewriting it, pretend like it's not here. Oh, well, this is a symbol for something else. The problem with that is the book of Ezekiel, as we have tried to explain, is symmetrical. The things happening at the beginning of the book are repeated at the end of the book. And at the beginning of the book, the Shekinah glory of God leaves Temple 1. And Temple 1 is described in Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11. And everybody takes that literally. No problem. So if that temple was literal, then why is it that the Shekinah glory of God re-entering Temple 4, which is even described with greater vividness, 
why should not that latter temple be taken with the same degree of literalness? Yet, this is the game that people constantly play in the book of Ezekiel. They take part of the book one way, and they interpret part of the book a different way. And we can't do that here at Sugarland Bible Church because we don't just follow a literal interpretation. We follow, key word, a consistent literal interpretation. I have absolutely no permission from God to rewrite his word unless in his word he tells me the temple represents something. Which he doesn't, he doesn't do here. So there is going to be, during the thousand year kingdom, a fully functioning fourth millennial temple. Now, one of the things that people do is they say, oh, there's no millennial kingdom. Let's just drag all that stuff into the eternal state. So in their eschatology, the study of the end, they have a second coming maybe, and then they have the eternal state, and they completely leapfrog the millennial kingdom. And they try to make it sound as if this temple is going to exist in the eternal state. And, of course, there's a big problem with that. The biggest problem with it is John's description of the eternal state, where he says in Revelation 21:22, I saw no temple. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. So if there's no temple in the eternal state, where are you going to put it? Well, we'll just uh, make it the church. Well, that doesn't say the church. The only place it fits is in that intermediate 1,000-year time period in between the return of Jesus to the earth and the eternal state. That's the only place a prophecy like this even fits. And there are countless, I'm just giving you one, there are countless prophecies like this in your Old Testament that do not fit today and they do not fit the eternal state. And the only place they fit is in this intermediate 1,000 year earthly kingdom. There, of course, is another major problem with trying to, trying to put this in the eternal state. And if you look at Ezekiel 45, just for a minute, it describes what one of the high priests is going to do during this time period. It says, on that day, the prince, now Charles Dyer was of the opinion that this is David. Um, I believe, obviously, in a literal David, but I'm not sure that the prince here is David, so we might have a slight difference of opinion on that. But it says, On that day the prince shall provide for himself and all the people of the land a bull as a sin offering. Now this this freaks everybody out. Because what they think it means is a restoration of animal sacrifices And Jesus did away with animal sacrifices. I believe that there will be animal sacrifices in the millennium, but they have really nothing to do with atoning for sin. They have to do with the same reason we're going to celebrate communion at this church next week. They have, the elements have no power, but they enable us to look backward to what Jesus did. Because the cup represents his blood, the bread represents his body, and we recognize that salvation is free to us, but it wasn't free to Jesus, the second member of the eternal Godhead. And so we leave that worship service when communion is practiced, which, by the way, the Lord commanded for communion to be practiced in the church on a consistent basis. We, we do that here monthly. Other churches do it weekly, quarterly. Um, There's no instructions regarding how frequently you have to practice it. Just make sure it's practiced regularly. Because if you don't practice it regularly, you're going to forget what Jesus did for you. Here's a pictorial reminder. Now think about this. The millennial kingdom is a time period where death has been totally scaled back. We, obviously, in resurrected bodies will not die. 
But then there's a group of people that survive the tribulation period that happen to be believers and they enter the millennial kingdom in their mortal bodies and they begin to repopulate the earth. And that group there, there's a sin element because the sin nature just got passed down through the chain, original sin. So you've got some people in the millennium that can't sin and other people that can And so death, it's very interesting, amongst those mortals is rolled back to almost, almost it doesn't exist anymore. Isaiah 65 and verse 20 says if someone during that time period dies when he's 100, everybody's going to think, what, what a shame such a young man died at such a young age. So it's a very different world from ours, where if you make it to 100, you're considered fortunate. So in a world where death is almost a thing of the past, is it not easy to forget what Jesus did to make the millennium possible? I mean, Jesus died for our sins. Died. What does that even mean? We don't even do that anymore. Die. So you can see why animal sacrifices in the temple are necessary Because they point back their memorial to what Jesus did. Oh, that's what death is like. I remember now. I just saw an animal slaughtered in the temple. Thank you, Jesus, that you died for the sins of the whole world and that you made the millennial kingdom a possibility. So you see what I'm doing here? I'm coming up with interpretations that give the benefit of the doubt to the biblical text. Most commentators don't do that. They just get out magic markers and erasers and rewrite the passage. I'm afraid to do that, quite frankly, because the Bible says, you know, if you add to the prophetic word, God will add to you the curses that are written in this book. If you subtract from the prophetic word, God will subtract your place from the book of life. That's in the very last chapter of the Bible. I've never fully understood how people feel the liberty to just rewrite the Bible to accommodate their own under you know understanding of things so when you look at Ezekiel 45 verse 22 it talks about this sin offering and you cannot put this in the eternal state because revelation 21 verse 4 says in the eternal state there'll be no sin or death at all He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain for the first things have passed away. How can you put this in the eternal state, the slaughter of animals, when in the eternal state there's no such thing as death at all? So this is a prophecy that doesn't fit today. It doesn't fit the eternal state. And thus you become a believer in an intermediate time period called the Millennial Kingdom, when these prophecies will be fulfilled. You look at the very, very end of chapter 37, and you have the word forever. In fact, as we were going through this, we saw the word forever. It's at the end of verse 25. It's at the end of verse 26. And there it is at the end of verse 27. My sanctuary is in their midst forever. And a lot of you are saying, hold the phone now. You just told us that this temple is going to last a thousand years, but the Bible says forever. And what you have to understand is the Hebrew word here, olam, that's translated forever, can mean forever. But it can also mean a very, very long but defined period of time. You'll find it used that way in Exodus 21, verses 5 and 6, where it says, But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not leave as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God And then he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. I think is how you pronounce that. A-W-all. And he shall serve him forever. Olam. Uh, The NASB translates that there forever or permanently. 
So if a slave still wants to be a slave, he gets this thing in his ear and he's dedicating himself to his master forever. That's the same word, olam. Now, obviously, he's not going to be in that position forever, like forever and ever. But it's referring to a very long but defined period of time. So that's how to understand these forever references to the temple. The temple will not exist forever because, as we saw, it's going to be done away with in the eternal state. So then how do we handle this word forever when we're limiting the temple to the thousand years? Well, forever lexically can refer to a period of time which is long but defined. That's what the millennial kingdom is. It's long. It's a thousand years. But it still is defined because it only will last for 1,000 years. So that takes us out of Ezekiel 37. Uh, the vision of the, the two visions or metaphors that Ezekiel saw depicting what he saw in chapter 36. Chapter 36 is the physical and spiritual restoration of the nation of Israel. Chapter 37 is that vision pictured in two forms, the valley of the dry bones and the two sticks coming together. Then the question becomes, okay, this is all fascinating information about the restoration of Israel in the last days. What in Israel, as we speak today, is a nation in unbelief? What is the catalyst or the agency that God is going to use to bring his covenanted people from unbelief to belief? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question because it's answered in chapters 38 and 39. The means of restoration is a northern invasion into the land of Israel spearheaded by Russia. Now, gosh, I didn't get on the phone with Putin and say, okay, when are you going to do the invasion? Because I want my study to be relevant. Um, the fact of the matter is, as you just go through the Bible, you see things happening in the news that, that fit exactly the scenario that Ezekiel describes. So, with that being said, we now move into the final leg of our study, which is chapters 38 and 39. You have an invasion plan, verses 1 through 13, an invasion executed, verses 14 through 16, an invasion defeated. There's a real happy ending to this. Chapter 38, verse 17, through chapter 39, verse 20. And then the invasion's results, end of chapter 39, verses 1 through 29. So let's start looking at, as time permits, the invasion planned, verses 1 through 13. We have God's intention, because these invading parties, they think they're doing their own will. But actually, it's God that put hooks in their jaws, as we'll see. So God's intention is disclosed in verses 1 through 9. And then Gog, that's the leader of the invasion, his intention is disclosed in verses 10 through 13. When you read verses 10 through 13, you'll understand the Middle East. You'll understand what just happened with Russia and the Ukraine because it's all about money. It's all about coming into the land of Israel for material reasons. That's why I was listening to a news commentator this week, and he said something to the effect of, Putin is going to go as far as Poland. And I shouted at the TV, no, he won't. He will keep going past Europe, past Poland, and he will go into the Middle East or one of his successors because that's what the Bible says would happen. And he's coming in because of wealth, economics. This is what Ezekiel said 2,600 years ago. So we have God's intention. God is drawing them in because God wants to be the rescuer at the end of the day. But they don't know they're being drawn by God, these foreign powers. And their intention is given in verses 10 through uh, 13. 
So let's begin here with chapter 38 and verse 1, which is God's intent. And you look at verse chapter 38, verse 1. It says, the word of the Lord came to me saying. So, aha, we have a new vision. And that's the structural marker that Ezekiel always uses to start something new. And what is being described here is the tool that God is going to use to bring an unbelieving nation to faith. He is going to put them in a situation where they have no one to help them. Not even the late, great United States of America will help them. And their back will be completely against the wall. And they'll have no one to help them but God. Now, when you think about that, that's a wonderful position to be in. Because they're actually going to ask God to help them. And that's when God works and brings them to saving faith. He rescues them physically and spiritually. So as you go into verse 2, you start to see a list of names. It says, Son of man, set your face toward Gog. That's the ruler, land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, and prophesy against him. So here are mentioned several nations that we'll be walking through as we move into this section. By my count, there's about 14 nations mentioned. You'll notice it says Gog, that's the leader of this coalition. And if you went to a normal church, you would have no idea who these people are. I mean, you would never hear, I mean, you would be looking at this saying, what in the world is this talking about? But because you go to an abnormal church that spent five weeks in Genesis 10, or maybe even more, you can go back to your notes in Genesis 10 and you, you'll recognize all of these names. These names Genesis 10 are Noah's descendants and where they went following the flood and the Tower of Babel. And all you have to do is pay attention to some scholarly sources like Herodotus, Josephus, etc. And you can generally see where these people groups went and the modern nations containing those people groups are part of this end times coalition. And then you'll look at your headlines and you'll see, oh my goodness, Ezekiel knew what he was talking about. Because every single one of them is perfectly in alignment for this scenario that we start to see described here. So you'll notice there that the first mention of a nation is Magog. Josephus tells us where Magog settled. You'll see Magog's name in Genesis 10. Josephus in the first century says Magog founded those that from him were named the Magogites, but who are by the Greeks called the Scythians. And basically we know that the Scythians migrated from Central Russia, excuse me, Central Asia to Southern Russia around the 8th to the 7th century BC. So we're pretty confident that Magog here represents those nations today that we call Central Asia, the Stands, Kazakhstan, the Ukraine, Afghanistan, maybe I need to say that again, Afghanistan, should I say it a third time, Afghanistan, Uh, you'll see them mentioned there, upper right hand corner of the map, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, and why don't we add one more? Afghanistan. Why do I keep mentioning Afghanistan over and over again? Well, unless you've been under a rock, um, Afghanistan probably is where one of the greatest debacles in American foreign policy has ever occurred. Where the Biden administration, and this, it makes absolutely no sense to me. 
either Joe Biden is the stupidest man that ever lived, as dumb as a box of rocks, which could be true, or he is being manipulated by powers outside of himself, or maybe some combination thereof. Uh, Maybe he was not elected, but selected to make a decision like this, where he took out of the country as we were getting out of Afghanistan. And whether you think we should be in Afghanistan or not in Afghanistan, that's not the point. The point is how he did it. Everybody with two brain cells to rub together understands that you get the civilians out first. And you get your allies and those who helped you out first. And you get your weapons, which happen to be $85 billion of weaponry, you get them out first, or you destroy them, or whatever you're going to do. Then, step two, you pull the military out. The Biden administration did the exact opposite. They pulled the military out first, left the weapons, left American citizens behind, um, left allies behind in a part of the world where the Taliban and related groups quickly seized authority. And so American allies, American citizens, you have a situation where they're trapped behind enemy lines and you just militarize the Taliban. I mean, the Taliban, they cannot cannot even believe their good fortune. Um, This is from Fox News. It talks about U.S. weapons seized by the Taliban because of the strange, bizarre, inept, bungling, manipulated, whatever term you want to use, pull out of Afghanistan. $85 billion in weaponry left behind. 75,000 vehicles left behind, 600,000 weapons left behind, 200 aircraft left behind to the Taliban that has an agenda to wipe Israel off the map. And our own government just paved the way for this to happen. Now, we can all get upset politically and rightfully so about it. But the truth of the matter is, when you actually look at this, it shouldn't be much of a surprise because Ezekiel himself predicted Magog, Central Asia, would come against the nation of Israel in the last days. The second nation that he mentions here is Rosh. Look at verse 2. Son of man, set your face towards Gog. That's the leader of the land of Magog, that's Central Asia. And then it says, set your face towards the prince of Rosh. Now, here we come into one of the most interesting and controversial debates on the subject of Bible prophecy. Because a lot of people out there, and I notice that they're raising their voices a lot now because of Putin's invasion of the Ukraine. And they're saying Russia has nothing to do with Bible prophecy. And the reason they're saying that is they're saying that Rosh is not a proper noun, but a common noun. And if Rosh is a common noun, then it's not a geographical place. And what they're all saying is Rosh simply is a common noun, a descriptor. Rosh means head, top, summit, chief. It doesn't mean Russia. In fact, if you're reading today from the King James Version, you will notice that the King James Version, as it translates verse 2, leaves out the name Rosh. Because a lot of you are reading this saying, I don't see, I don't see Rosh here. And the reason you don't see Rosh here is the King James Version, although a very good translation in other areas, has made a decision to treat the noun Rosh as a common noun and not a proper noun designating a specific person or designating a specific place. So this is how it will read in the KJV or the RSV or the ESV or the NAB. 
or the NLT or the NIV. Some of you might be NIV positive. You're reading this out of the NIV. You're saying, Pastor, I don't see the name Rosh. Well, there's a reason for that. The English translations made a decision not to translate this as a proper noun, but as a common noun. There's a lot of people that are capitalizing on this, even people that typically you would like. Here is uh, Derek Gilbert of Skywatch News. And you notice his Gog Magog invasion doesn't look like mine. I've got this big arrow from Rosh or Russia coming down into the land of Israel. He doesn't have that. He thinks the whole thing is spearheaded by Turkey, etc. And he writes on this tweet, rough locations of the northern coalition of God in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Mount Zephon is the uttermost north. Then he says, no, Russia is not Magog. In Hebrew, Rosh means head. So he's following the King James Version, and he's taking Rosh as a common noun. And what you'll discover is people that will malign this interpretation that I'm giving, a Russian-led conspiracy. And I, I sadly even had a seminary professor do this. Oh, ha, 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 you think it's Russia. Well, you just think that because Rosh sounds like Russia. And you're trying to make it up to fit the headlines. So there's another perspective, though, where Rosh is a proper noun. Not a common noun, but a proper noun. Meaning that Rosh is a geographical place on planet Earth. It doesn't just mean head, uh, chief, summit, top. It's talking about a specific location and a specific group of people. And you'll notice that the New American Standard Bible, which of course is the version that the Apostle Paul used, right? You'll notice if you're reading this under the NASB, so you're a spirit-led Christian in other words. And this is a good exercise for us because these English translations that we have, none of them are perfect. So you, on different issues, you gravitate toward different ones best on what you think, which one captures the best rendering of the Hebrew text. You'll notice that Rosh is mentioned. Son of man, set your face towards Gog, the leader of the land of Magog, Central Asia, the prince of Rosh, and we believe that the prince of Rosh is Russia. Now, why do we believe that Rosh is not a common noun, but a proper noun? Are we just trying to sell books? Um, My friend and colleague, Dr. Mark Hitchcock, in his book, called The End, which I'd recommend to you, gives five reasons why we should understand this as a proper noun and not a common noun. He says, The weight of the evidence favors translating Rosh in Ezekiel 38 as a proper name. Five arguments support this view. Okay, I like this guy. First, eminent Hebrew scholars like Kyle. Now, Kyle and Dillich is one of the most reputable uh, sources in Hebrew that you can possibly find. First, eminent scholars like Kyle, and then he mentions Wilhelm Gesenius, both held that a proper noun is the better translation of Rosh in Ezekiel 38, verses 2 and 3, Ezekiel 39, verse 1, and refers to a specific geographical location. And I actually have Gesenius's quote written in 18, reprinted, I guess, in 1847. He died, I think, in 1842, where he looks at Rosh and he says it's a proper noun. Gesenius is the father of lexicography which is the science and art of compiling dictionaries, predominantly Hebrew dictionaries. He was no slouch. And he made that statement about Russia when Russia was a Christian Orthodox country. He says Russia is going to invade Israel. And there wasn't even an Israel at the time he said this. 
to invade. So this maligning of the view, oh, you just think it sounds the same, so you're making it Russia. Well, what do you do with Cassinius, a scholar's scholar? Mark Hitchcock goes on and he says, second, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, translates Rosh as the proper name Ross. This translation is especially significant since the Septuagint was translated only three centuries after Ezekiel was written, obviously much closer in time to the original than modern translations. The modern translations of Rosh as an adjective can be traced to the Latin Vulgate of Jerome, a translation, by the way, that Luther himself did not trust because he felt it contained Roman Catholic concepts in it. So Luther, when he did his German translation, did not rely on the Latin Vulgate. Third, in their articles on Rosh, many Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias, such as the New Bible Dictionary, Wycliffe Bible Dictionary, International Standard Bible Encyclopedia support taking it as a proper name in Ezekiel 38. Fourth, Rosh is mentioned the first time in Ezekiel 38 verse 2 and then repeated in chapter 38 verse 3 and chapter 39 verse 1. If Rosh were simply a title, meaning chief or head or top, it would be dropped in these latter two places because when titles are repeated in Hebrew, they are generally abbreviated. So it's not just called Rosh here in verse 2. It's also called Rosh, verse 3, chapter 39, verse 1. The full name is given, which would be very, very odd in terms of repetition for this to be just a title of something. Fifth, the most impressive evidence in favor of taking Rosh as a proper name is simply that this translation in this context is the most natural. J.A. Cook translates Ezekiel 38 verse 2, the chief of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. He calls this the most natural way of rendering the Hebrew. The compelling evidence of biblical scholarship indicates that Rosh be understood as a proper name, the specific geographical area. So why do we think Rosh means Russia? I mean, we know it's a place. Hitchcock says, first, linguistically and historically, there is substantial evidence that in Ezekiel's day, there was a group of people known as Rosh, Rishu, or Ross, who lived in what today is southern Russia. Egyptian inscriptions as early as 2600 B.C. identify a place called Rosh. A later Egyptian inscription from about 1500 B.C. refers to a land called Rishu that was located to the north of Egypt. Other documents include a place named Rosh or its equivalent in various languages. The word appears three times in the Septuagint, ten times in Sargon's inscriptions, once in Ashurbanipal's cylinder, once in Sennacherib's annals, and five times in Ugaritic tablets. Mark Hitchcock did his master's thesis on this subject. With, with the word has a variety of forms and spellings, it is clear that the same people are in view. Rosh was apparently a well-known place in Ezekiel's day. Number one, it's a place. It's a people. It's not some sort of adjectival description. Number two, using all of these sources, we can track where that people group existed. And the place they existed is what today we call Russia. Clyde Billington in the Michigan Theological Journal has an extended description of this. And he says the Rosh people of the area north of the Black Sea form the people known today as the Russians. Gesinius, a scholar-scholar, 
said of Rosh, it's not just a proper noun. He says in his Hebrew and Chaldee lexicon, he says undoubtedly the Russians. Now, why, why give you all this boring lexical information? Because you're about to be hit by a bunch of propaganda if you haven't been hit by it already. Sadly, much of it coming from within Christianity, saying Rosh has nothing to do with Russia. And I'm here completely disagreeing with what they're saying. I am disagreeing with the King James Version on that point. This is not a common noun. This is a proper noun. And you can academically identify Rosh as the people group of Russia. So when Putin in 2008, I think it was, rolls right over Georgia, I said to myself, well, that's terrible, but I'm not surprised. Because Ezekiel predicted the character of that nation 2,600 years ago. And then in 2014, when Putin became aggressive into Crimea, I say to myself, you know, it's disappointing, but I'm not surprised. Because Ezekiel predicted the character of that nation 2,600 years ago. And this week when Putin invades the Ukraine, by the way, just look at a map, as he's invading the Ukraine, he's not going the opposite direction of Israel. He's coming down from the north, which is exactly what Ezekiel said would happen. I say to myself, what a tragic thing. Because we have connected to our church some of our missionaries trying to get out. I mean, it's a terrible thing, but I say to myself, you know, it's horrible. It's terrible. I'm going to pray for the oppressed people there. I'm going to do everything within my power to get our folks out. But then I say at the back of my head, I'm really not surprised because Ezekiel predicted the character of that nation 2,600 years ago. So it's not just, oh, you think Rosh means Russia, they sound the same, ha, ha, ha. No, there's actually exegetical and lexical academic reasons why Rosh is a proper noun meaning Russia. There's also a geographical argument. Look at chapter 38, verse 6. Gomer with all its troops, Beth Tagarma, from the remote parts of the north. Look at chapter 38, look at verse 15. You will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north. Look at chapter 39, look at verse 2. And I will turn you around, drive you, and take you from the remote parts of the north. I'm seeing a pattern here. This is not just a northern invasion. It's coming from the remote parts of the north. Now, most people, when they see this expression north, they don't know what to to do with it. Where's the starting point? And let me help you with that. The starting point in Bible prophecy is always Israel. Because if you look down at verse 12, God says of Israel, they live at the center of the world. You have to start to think the way God thinks. You see, the world itself looks at Israel as just a little nation in the way of progress. But that's not how God thinks. As far as God is concerned, Israel is living at the center of the world. In fact, that word translated center is belly button or navel in Hebrew, which is the center of the body, because that's the part of the world that God covenanted real estate to a particular group of people. Over in Ezekiel verse 5, chapter 5, verse 5, it talks about Jerusalem dwelling at the center of the nations. So the starting point is always Israel and just go straight up north. What nation do you run into? You run into Rosh. Or Russia. So there is a lexical slash exegetical argument why Rosh means Russia. And there's actually a geographical argument why Rosh means Russia. Which means you understand something 
that the people on cable television can't even begin to figure out. Because your starting point is God's word, you understand exactly why that happened. That what what is that? One nation rolling over another. That is just phase A for for greater things coming. Because your Bible says, ultimately, Russia is going to keep right on moving north and it's going to go right into the land of Israel. And there's a lot of territory in between there. I want you to understand something, and I need to get ready to to wrap up, believe it or not. The world changed this week. I hope you understand that. We are living in, and I don't mean to get knee-deep into politics, but we are living in the post Donald Trump world. Where the world system was upset over Trump's tweets. That's the biggest problem they had. Look look at his tweets. Well, guess what? You got rid of that president, I think, in very suspicious way, but that's another sermon for another day. The tweets are gone, but we're on the precipice of World War III. Why? Because Putin, ex-KGB agent, by the way, smells weakness. Why would he smell uh, smell weakness? Because of the debacle in Afghanistan. He looks at Joe Biden as someone that won't stand up for anything. And so what you're going to see more and more is these dictators are going to start making their move. And if Russia is successful here, you watch what China does. And you watch what Iran does, which as I speak is on the cusp of getting a nuclear weapon. God help us. And yet you look at the world and you say, this is very disappointing. But at the same time, you know what? This is what God said would happen. Because Jesus is coming back to rescue his church from the wrath of God. Can I get an amen on that? Well, speaking of literal interpretation, I'm six minutes over. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your truth, your word, how it informs us even about headlines and make us good stewards of your truth in these last days. Help us to use these things to point people to the good news of Jesus Christ. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, happy mini intermission.